We'll be reading from Romans 13. We will also be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. First Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions... And thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you as a church this morning and we worship you. We acknowledge that you alone are God and there is none like you. We take comfort and refuge in you, that you are almighty, that you are all-knowing, that you love us and are our Redeemer. Father, this morning as we come to these passages that we will talk about briefly, as we come to this time of year, this time in our election cycle, this time in our nation's history, in world history, and we acknowledge that we need you all the more. I pray this morning that you would help us as we open your word to hear from you about how we ought to think, about how we ought to practice discernment, about how we ought to be citizens and exercise our civic duties and be neighbors to one another and how you would have us to live in this time. So we ask that you would be at work this morning. We quiet our hearts before you in submission to your word and to you, expecting to hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we've been talking enough about election recently. I thought we would take a week off of that and talk about the election. Just to, just to shake things up a little bit. And uh, it's a, a particular blessing that we have in our nation, that we get to participate and vote for who will be our elected representatives. What an opportunity we have to, uh, to be able to play that role. There have the majority of history, that has not been the case. We have unique opportunity, unique privilege and a unique responsibility as it comes uh, to this time of year. And so I wanted to take some time this morning and talk about how our relationship to God as Christians, the fact of our being Christians, 
how that influences the way we think about even political events, even elections, and those sorts of things. How do we assess different candidates? How do we assess different political parties? How do we think about these political issues? Well, character matters. But it seems to me that in this presidential election, we have two very deeply flawed candidates. And uh, I can uh, safely say that. The question is how we are going to decide between two candidates or more. Maybe you've got a, a, another one in mind. I don't know. But how are we going to decide between these flawed candidates? And I propose to you that if, on the one hand, you, uh, you cannot stand a foul-mouthed braggart, that you will probably determine that that candidate is the least qualified, is the more flawed of the two candidates. But if, on the other hand, you happen to be more suspicious of someone who appears to fondle other people's wives and children in public, then I suggest to you that you might consider that one to be the more flawed of the two candidates. Character matters. And as we look at these candidates, we struggle to be able to identify um, how to think about and determine a candidate based upon their own character. And those, those character flaws that they have, they affect their leadership. And fortunately, we have a track record for each to look at and examine their track record and what has come from that. And I want to say at this point that we are not voting for a savior. We have a savior. We are not voting for a pastor. We're not even voting for the person who's going to move into the house next door to you. We are voting for someone who will be, in many respects, our federal head as a nation. That's who we're voting for. That's what we're talking about. Ultimately, we are voting for his policies, for his platform. Ultimately, we are voting on worldview issues for each of these candidates and for these parties involved. We are determining which worldview we think ought to be predominant in our nation for the foreseeable future. That's what we're really voting on, is worldview-type issues. And we have uh, received word this uh, just this past week. Actually, I think I, I got an email on it yesterday that one of our missionary families who's been serving in a communist country will be coming home permanently, leaving the field. And that is because of the worldview issues in that communist country. That the worldview there has driven them out. They will uh, minister in other capacities, but in other locations, and that's the point. And for the Beheimer family, though these uh, ten years ago, we came home from the mission field for much the same reasons. Because of worldview issues, the worldview of the nation in which we lived, Russia, which of course formerly had been the Soviet Union, had a particular worldview that wanted to edge out Christianity, that wanted to edge out us. And that's what has happened to uh, these missionaries in this communist country as well. And so when we talk about worldview issues, this is massive, this is big, this doesn't just affect uh, the next year or the next four or eight years. We're talking about life-altering, nation-altering worldview issues. And those are the things that we are discussing. Those are the things we are looking at when we're looking at our political election that we are in the midst of right now. So I want to look at a couple of different passages. The first one I want to talk about, I just read Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And we spent uh, quite a while going through this just a few months ago in relationship to our own thoughts about uh, how to relate to our government and our governor and certain edicts and whatnot that have come to us in the context of this COVID situation and all that. So we've worked through Romans 13 not too long ago, and I don't intend to work through it in detail this morning. I just want to make a couple of points uh, about the fact that we get to select our ministers in this situation. That Paul here calls the governing authorities ministers of God for us. Somehow instruments in his hand, useful to him, used to accomplish his purposes in our country. Those are our ministers. And so we get to be involved in choosing our ministers. And so we see in, in Romans 13 that 
Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. It's a pretty clear and blank, blanket statement about the authorities that we have over us, that, that they have been put there by God. He has given us the authorities that we have from His hand to us, and thus our response to them is to be subject to them. And whoever resists, verse 2, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And so you think about this in your, in your own household, the family you grew up in, the parents that were given to you. You didn't choose your parents. And unless you were adopted, they didn't choose you. God put together that relationship. God put the authorities over you that he put over you. And the command to you was to honor your mother and father. And so we have this unique opportunity where we get to think about our ministers. We get to think about those who will be God's ministers to us. And we get to make a choice beforehand about who they will be. That's like a, a child choosing the parents that will adopt him. That's kind of the situation we find ourselves in. But the authorities that we have over us have been put there by God. And they reward good conduct. They punish bad conduct. And we can see how that is not 100% always the case. We know that there are situations where governments actually punish good conduct. And they reward bad conduct. I'm aware of that. I've lived in those places. I've seen that happen. And maybe you have too. And maybe you don't have to think too far to discover that. But they have the right. Authorities have the right to punish evil. They are God's ministers to do that very thing. And even, did you notice that it says in here that they have the right to tax us? For because of this you also pay taxes. Verse 6, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And so pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. That hurts. That really hurts. I wish there were, I wish it said something different. You don't have to pay your taxes. <laughs> That'd be so great. That's not what it says. The authorities have been put over us. Here they actually get to choose to tax us and we submit and pay those taxes. And so in light of all of this, in light of Romans 13, here we stand on the eve of an election. Just nine or ten days away. Where we get to cast our vote for whose policies, whose position, whose platform is going to be determining for us how they will execute, how they will enforce laws to reward what is good and to punish what is evil. And of course, their input on that topic is huge. But here we are, not after the fact, suffering from what has happened, but looking at it going forward where we get to cast a vote. We get to have a say in what is going to happen in our nation. In other words, now in the election is when we have the best opportunity to make our will known, to express as a people the worldview we want to have in force. That's what we get to decide right now. This is so much greater than just a discussion between two candidates I really don't like this guy because of this reason. I really don't like that guy because of this reason. And my guy's better and your guy's worse. That's not what's going on. We are talking about entire worldviews that we are discussing. A worldview is essentially the glasses, the lens through which we observe all of life. The ways we naturally interpret all of life. Where we came from. Where we're going. What's the cause of the problems in the world? And what are the solutions to those? It includes the, the value of humanity, the value of our world, how we're going to make those decisions. All of that stuff is worldview. And we all have a worldview. That doesn't mean a worldly view, as if it's sinful. We all have a worldview. We all think we have answers to those questions. And you can have a more or less biblical worldview 
But we all have a worldview. And that's what we're casting votes in regard to with this upcoming election is what worldview do we want to have governing us? Determining what will and will not be laws or what will and will not be enforced. That's what we're talking about. What worldview will we support? In Matthew 22, verses 36 and through 40, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And you're familiar with that, and you're familiar with Jesus' answer. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, to love God with all of your capacity. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, with these two great commandments, what Jesus had done was to summarize the law. Love God with all of your capacity. That's the greatest commandment. That's the first commandment. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two hang all of the law and the prophets. In other words, this is a summary statement that will be fleshed out in the law, and in the prophets. And we can most clearly see those two commandments as summarizing the law when we look at the Ten Commandments. So turn with me to Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. Remember, what we're looking at here is worldview. We're examining the worldview of our, not just the candidates, but the parties they represent, the policies they will Uh, seek to put into place, and all of those things. We're talking about larger issues. And so today what we want to do is work our way through the Ten Commandments very quickly, very briefly, and look at a biblical worldview by means of these commandments of how we ought to see, how we ought to examine, how we ought to discern what is good and what is evil in our lives and in the application we're talking about today in regard to the election. Exodus 20. We're just going to work our way through all of the Ten Commandments and talk about uh, each of them briefly in passing. Exodus 20 and starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Have no other gods. So when we're putting together our Christian worldview... And when we're examining in light of a Christian worldview, these competing worldviews that would vie for our vote, what does this have to do with the election? You shall have no other gods before me. Well, of course, if we think about political candidates, we think about uh, political parties, we think about political platforms, we see that this commandment of having no other gods before God raises the question of religious freedom. Religious freedom, whether, whether it will be determined for us by our government that we will have some other God in place of the Lord our God. Well, we see an example of this in, in Roman history where there was a compulsory participation in a false religion like the emperor worship of uh, the days of Rome. And that's why when you read in the New Testament and you read that Jesus is Lord, that's a big deal because the compulsory religion of the day was to say that Caesar is Lord. And so you have Jesus taking over that role. And so when the, when the, the government uh, decision would be to relegate a particular religion for us to cause us to participate in one particular religion or another, you see that they are brushing up against and very often just breaking this first commandment, that we are to have no other gods before God. And for many, it's not just a God as in a supernatural being, but, but for some, they have other gods in place of the one true God and And it's possible for the state to be that. It's possible for many other things to play that role. And there's another way this can be broken, and that is compulsory participation in practical atheism that goes under the the heading of secular humanism. That is 
uh, rampant in our culture. It's rampant in the public education system. It governs a lot of what gets reported in the news. It governs the way we can or cannot talk in public or who, or who uh, will not have a platform. It's atheistic in its origin. It denies the existence of God. And it says, oh, you can believe that there's a God on your own time or in your own heart. But don't dare let it interrupt what's going on in school or in the public arena. No, you just keep it private. That is one way that a political platform, a worldview, would run into conflict with this first commandment. So when we're thinking about worldview issues, when we're thinking about how we view the whole world, you've got to view the world with the one true God at the center. Otherwise, you're going to be off from the very beginning. So as we're examining, as we're critiquing worldview and the worldview of our candidates and and their parties, we've got to think in that term. We've got to think about the central role of God in this. And is that being infringed upon? That's just the first commandment. We'll move on. The second one relates to it. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Make no graven images. Make no carved images. Well, last I checked, the government wasn't trying to make a bunch of idols or carved images or anything like that. But of course, this has broad application. It's not just don't make a statue for yourself that you're going to bow down to. That, of course, would be included, but that's not the main thing that's being discussed here. So how could, how could uh, uh, political policies break this commandment? Well, one would be, uh, a possibility would be establishing some kind of a national religion based upon in- inclusivism, where, yeah, you can be religious all you want, but you've got to uh, acknowledge that everyone else with their religion uh, is equally valid with yours, and don't you dare speak against them. See, what we're doing in that instance is we are reshaping God according to our political preference. We have made God into an idol. We have replaced him with some form of idol. That's why we don't draw pictures of God. You know, when it, it's, uh, I love it when my small children will draw a picture of mommy and daddy. And of course, imagine the hair, right? You can all picture what the stick figure looks like. And the big round head and the hair, if it's daddy, looks like that, right? Well, that's cute and, and that's fun, right? And I, and I appreciate that and I think those are great pictures and I, I keep some of those. But if that child didn't get to see me or if, if that was the picture I had of what a man looks like and I never got to see another human face and this was all I had, how long would it take before I would mess up? I would confuse in my mind what I really actually look like. How long would that take? I would, I would begin to reshape my image of myself based upon this stick figure drawing of my child. And as time goes on and, and as, as the years go by, if that's my image, if that's every time I think of daddy or every time I think of myself, I think of this stick figure, I will be very confused about who I am. It's the same with God. God doesn't give us a picture of himself. He describes his actions in history. He describes what he's like. He explains for us his character and nature. But we don't reduce that to a picture because as soon as we do, we have just marred who he is. We have just limited the infinite. We've made him into an idol. That's why we don't draw pictures of God. And these, this commandment here has to do with that. But how often do we do that without ever drawing a picture? We limit God and reshape him in some way in our own minds all the time. And so some kind of an inclusivistic religion of, of course would would brush against this would would break that commandment but I think I think it goes even farther than that. If the government were to force churches to perform same-sex marriages for example, regardless of our conscience, regardless of what we think the Bible says, regardless of any of that, if the government were to force us to do those things, that is reshaping God as if God had never spoken against such a thing. 
as if God didn't really have an opinion about same-sex marriage. We have to act as though God doesn't really care, which, of course, Scripture teaches very clearly that God cares about that. That would be that would be having an image, making some sort of a graven image. That would be marring the image of who God is to fit our context. So the government can, of course, do that. And the state itself can become an idol in that it promises all the salvation you really need by political and economic needs. That's really all you need is, is the salvation that the state can provide. First two commandments. Let's look at the third one. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Anytime a candidate appeals to God on the one hand and then pursues policies contrary to God's law on the other hand, they have broken this commandment. Anytime a party or platform appeals to God in certain contexts and yet behaves in, in pursuing policies in other contexts that directly deny God, they are taking the Lord's name in vain. It doesn't just mean using God's name as a swear word. It means taking his name and then doing profane things. You can see how that happens. Another way that we can take the Lord's name in vain or that a political party can or that a government can is any attempt to redefine who God is and what Christianity is. Any effort in, from, a, from a political perspective that would redefine for us what Christianity really is, would redefine for us who God really is. They're taking the Lord's name in vain. Fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So remember the Sabbath day. Well, you think, how, how can that be affected? Well, I, I can give an example from history that in the late 20s and early 30s, the USSR, who hated God vehemently, wanted to get God out of the picture. And so one of the ways they did that was change the work week. They changed the work week to avoid Sundays. For a while, they had a five-day work week where people would work four days and have a fifth day off. They did that for a while. Then they went to a six-day week where you work five days, have one day off. And they did that for lots of reasons. And one of the reasons was because they wanted to remove from the people's minds the connection between Sunday as a day of rest, a day of commitment to the Lord, a day not to go to work, a day to set aside for the Lord. They wanted to remove that from their minds. They wanted to erase that from their culture. And so I don't know that I see that on the horizon. Maybe you know of ways, but I, I've seen it happen in history. We are to honor the Lord's day. So we need to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so as we've looked through these first four of the commandments, remember what uh, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your capacity. Well, we've kind of summarized that we've kind of fleshed it out a little bit more. I should say from these first four commandments, Paul said in Galatians five fourteen that the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that simple command right there is a summary of God's law as it pertains to our relationship with one another, which, by the way, is the next six of the Ten Commandments. Now, there's discussion about whether the fifth commandment goes on the first side or the second side. That's not our purpose for today. But Paul said, how do we summarize the law as it relates to our relationship to one another, the way we treat one another, and that is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it's interesting that at election time, you'll have people who that you otherwise wouldn't expect know a thing about the Bible that will come forth and, and want to tell you that the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, and we have to keep that in the center of our minds. We've got to, to move forward. With that, we've got to vote with that in mind. Well, I want to say they are right that that is a great commandment. And it is one we have to keep in mind, how we treat one another. We are to love our neighbor as ourself. But I also want to remind them and remind you this morning, that is the second commandment. 
The first commandment is to love God with all of your capacity. The second commandment is informed by the first commandment. That first great commandment that Jesus said to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that has to be in place first. Otherwise, you are unprepared to, unable to love your neighbor as yourself. You don't have what it takes. You don't understand how to do it. So the second commandment uh, that Jesus refers to, the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, has to be informed by and subsequent to loving God with all that we are. Why do I say that? Why, why do I say that? Well, because very often the, those who would remind us so uh, vocally around election time that Christians, this is the way you ought to vote. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. They do so without reference to the fact that we are to love God first and with all of our capacity and in the ways he tells us to. See, what happens when we switch those two around is we, we suddenly think that the good of our neighbor is the greatest good that there is. That's the highest good. It's a very high good. But it's second place after loving God first. And we see that here in the Ten Commandments as well. And so we move on to our fifth commandment here, honor your father and mother. What would policies look like that would break this commandment? Well, any policy that would claim that children have the right to divorce their parents breaks this commandment. Any policy that would give underage girls access to birth control or abortions without parental consent breaks this commandment. Barring parental rights to veto gender reassignment surgery or puberty blockers or opposite sex hormones would be breaking this commandment to, to keep parents out of that loop and not allowing them to be involved in that process is to break this commandment. And there was a case just like this in British Columbia. A Canadian court in British Columbia has ruled that a 14-year-old girl who believes she is transgender can go through medical procedures to change her sex to a boy despite her father's fierce objections. The state stepped in and said, now you don't need to worry about honoring your father and your mother. Any redefinition of family is a direct violation of this commandment. Any policies hostile to the biblical family violate this commandment. We'll see that come up again. The next commandment, do not murder. I didn't read the last commandment. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Do not murder. Surely no political party would participate in that. Abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, genocide that we heard about this morning, holocaust, or a willingness to look the other way from violence and even killing as long as it advances the correct agenda. An unwillingness to punish, to prosecute, because the violence was done in the name of the right Agenda. That would be to break this commandment. Next, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 14, do not commit adultery. Well, a political party, of course, is a party. A platform is a platform and therefore cannot itself commit adultery. This, this commandment itself, though, confirms the created order of male and female as created by God. And so, like we saw earlier, how would a political platform, a political movement, a political party break this commandment not to commit adultery? Any redefinition of marriage contributes to the breaking of this commandment. There are certain welfare policies that have been enacted that have had the effect of discouraging marriage and promote, promoting having children out of wedlock. That is to break this commandment. The promotion and normalization of pornography, prostitution, pedophilia, that is to break this commandment. 
encouragement and enablement of sexual exploration and promiscuity, for example, in sex education in schools. That is to break this commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Next. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Margaret Thatcher very famously said, the trouble with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. She was exactly right. It's built on theft from other people. Uh, Marxism and socialism. I've been on a reading spree reading about Marxism and its effects in the 20th century and into the 21st century uh, for quite a while. And it's built on the idea of theft. It includes, built into it, and see if any of this sounds familiar from listening to the news, the confiscation of private property or the destruction of private property. Eventually, the goal is the abolition of private property. It is wrong for you to own that land, that house, that business. Connected with that is the redistribution of wealth. The taking of wealth from this person and giving it to another. That is theft. That is breaking this commandment. As one author put it, theft is when people are given the right to vote to take money from some people so it can be given to other people. That's to break this commandment. That's theft. Next, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, children in our household have always received a much sterner discipline for lying than for uh, other infractions. And we want them to know from early on that it is wrong and dangerous Deadly to lie. And so they received a stricter discipline from early on. Lying is bad and it comes with significant consequences and we want our children to know that. Well, how could uh, a political candidate or a political party or a political platform or a worldview bear false witness? Well, of course, you've, you've heard the one about how you can tell a politician is lying, right? Well, we, I happen to know some politicians. I wouldn't, accu- I wouldn't accuse of that. But you've heard, you've heard that joke. It's because being in politics is connected in our minds with doing or saying whatever has to be done or said to accomplish your agenda. Now, it's one thing, and it's a bad thing to have politicians that lie. But when the policies and the worldview of that person have deception built right into the platform, the problem goes to a whole new level. In part of my reading about Marxism and communism and socialism in the 20th century, one of the things that came up was how often American politicians would trust Soviet leaders. For example, FDR was convinced that Joseph Stalin was an honest guy. I can trust him. I can trust him. I've talked to him. I've looked him in the eye. I can trust him. But what FDR failed to understand and what history proved to be true is that Stalin was a liar, not just because he said things that were untrue, but because the basis of his worldview said, I should lie if it will advance my cause. I will do and I will say anything to advance communism in this world. That's a part of his very worldview. And so he would lie to you with a straight face because it didn't bother him. He thought he was doing good. For him, it wasn't a character flaw. It was a strength. It was a virtue to lie to FDR to accomplish his purposes, and FDR missed it. And many, many uh, world leaders did not understand that. So we need to understand that we're not just talking about this candidate is a liar or that candidate is a liar. We're talking about the very worldview that makes lying not just allowable, but in many cases necessary according to their worldview. So we need to have that clear. So... Policies that that, uh, promote obfuscation, cover-ups, falsifying or burying documents. That's pretty clear. Misinformation, not just misinformation to enemies, but to the voting public. Propaganda is a form of this. Particularly propaganda in cooperation with a particular media bias or outright, like in the USSR, state-controlled media. It was said, uh, I read somewhere not long ago where a, a Chinese person was 
making the comment that I, I can't believe you Americans still watch TV. We watch the news. We, we stopped watching the news a long time ago because we know they're lying to us. Because they know there's propaganda. Propaganda is so, so deadly. State-controlled media is a part of that bearing false witness. And then finally, there's the very dangerous concept of the redefinition of terms, what, what is often referred to as doublespeak. An example of that, a simple example that is a little bit passe now, it's so, it's so normal to us, is the word tolerant. What does tolerant mean? Well, it used to mean that you allowed the person to have that opinion and you weren't going to punish them, you weren't going to kill them, you weren't going to, to insist that they change their opinion, but, yeah, you're allowed to have that opinion. I tolerate your opinion. That was the extent of toleration. I believe your opinion is completely bogus, but you're allowed to have that, that wrong opinion. That's what it means to be tolerant, at least to most of us. But it has been redefined to the point that if you don't give active verbal appreciation for that view, you are intolerant. Not just that you're, you're not going to hit that person or you're not going to call that person evil names or you're not going to do something damaging to that person. Yeah, I believe you're utterly wrong, but you're allowed to have that opinion. No, no. That's not what it means to be tolerant. To be tolerant now means to give active approval to that thing. And so you see celebrities now, anytime a new um, uh, politically correct thing happens in the news, they just jump all over themselves to be the first in line to say, yeah, yeah, I support that too. They have to actively, verbally, publicly support it or else they will be intolerant. Seventeen. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. How can the government contribute to this? How, how can a political candidate or party or platform or worldview break this? Well, one is the entitlement mentality that we see so rampant in our culture. I am entitled to that thing because I breathe. Any of the various forms of Marxism and socialism that, that have existed and that still exist, they fixate on what others have and they tell you that you are being oppressed because you don't have that thing that they have. You're entitled to it because you breathe. I could go on and on, but I won't. Thirdly, what must we do? What must we do? This is where we opened up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Before we get to 1 Timothy chapter 2, in conclusion to working through the Ten Commandments and, and thinking about worldview issues, the first thing we ought to do is assess worldview in light of God's Word. In light of God's Word. We don't interpret the Bible in light of our experience. We interpret our experience in light of the Bible. The same is true with how we vote, with how we think about political and economic issues. We interpret them in light of what Scripture says. So in working through the Ten Commandments there, that, and that was, that was very brief and it was general in some ways, and, and it should be a, a, a start for you in thinking through how you're going to vote. Now, I know many of you have already voted. Many of you, there's not a, a chance in the world that you would ever change your vote. But when we think about voting, when we think about these issues, think about them in light of Scripture. So first of all is assess by Scripture. But then what, what must we do according to First Timothy chapter 2? First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. That's, that's us praying for our existing leaders and the ones that will be. And the voting process that will lead to those who will be our leaders. Pray, pray, trust the Lord. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Do you think the church was negatively affected by the Soviet Union? The church in Russia, was it negatively affected by the Soviet Union? 
It was devastated. It was devastated. God still worked and God is still working there. Was the church in China affected negatively by, by the, uh, the changes that took place, the, the communist influx and Chairman Mao and all that stuff in the 20th century? It was devastated. Devastated. God still works and God is working. We need to pray and trust the Lord who is over all of these things as we think about our votes, as we think about who will come into power, as we think about what will happen to our nation, as we think about what will happen to the church, what will happen to your freedom to be able to be here on a Sunday morning freely without being taxed to do so, without having anyone checking up on us to worship the Lord together. Our freedoms as Christians, we have to assess that and we need to pray and trust the Lord with it. And the next vote, vote. God has given us a unique opportunity. A wise man once said, not voting is the same as voting for the winner. You're going you're gonna to abstain from voting because I don't like these candidates? Well, great. You just cast your vote for the winning candidate. You, you supported him by your lack of support. You just didn't get to choose which one it was going to be. You let everyone else choose for you. So take advantage of this opportunity we have and this responsibility that we as Christians have to make a Christian voice known. A biblical voice known in this election. Vote. And then finally, in in conclusion, however the election goes, our ultimate hope is not in Washington. It's not anywhere on earth. Our hope is in Christ. That's where our hope is. We need to take advantage of the opportunity that he has given us to vote, to express our opinions on these topics, to even influence other people to vote similarly, to vote in a biblical way. We have opportunity, we have responsibility to do those things, and, and God uses that in the part of, as part of the process of putting the person into office he's going to do. So we pray and we trust him and we vote. And in the end, we do not place our hope in Washington, D.C., We do not place our hope in Carson City. We do not place our hope in any government, governing body, or anything like that on this earth. Our hope is in Christ. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. They're his. And they're for him. Even the office of the president. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is preeminent. He's the one we ultimately look to. Not shirking our responsibility to to vote, to even influence other voters. Not shirking our responsibility to pray, to look to the Lord and trust Him. But trusting Him because He is preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. We are deeply invested in our political world. We are deeply invested in our country. We're patriots. We love our country. But this is not our home. We need to take every, every opportunity to vote, to pray, influence others, to think biblically, to help other people think biblically. We take every opportunity. We fulfill our duties and our responsibility in that regard. But this world is not our home. Ultimately, ultimately, we look to Him And if things go poorly, however you determine that, in the next two to four years, if things go south, well, he is still Lord and he is still on the throne. We still trust him and we still find our identity in him, not in our political party, not in our political positions, not in our political oppositions. Our identity is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. He's the one who has brought peace, not peace on this world yet, peace between us and God. That's where we find hope is in Christ himself.
And so I know this is an unusual message. It's an unusual time in our country, but we need to be able to think biblically on these topics and trust the Lord and know how to discern this world we live in, know how to discern the times, know how to discern even how we should vote. Let's pray together. Father, this is unusual for us to uh, take a time on a Sunday morning and discuss uh, politics, to discuss uh, the election, but it's important. You have put us here for such a time as this. There is a way to vote that honors you. There are ways to vote that dishonor you. There are ways for us to be citizens that dishonor you or honor you. Father, we trust you, and we know ultimately you are in charge. You, uh, you have determined by your good hand what will happen, and we ask that you would be merciful to our nation. We have sinned against you in every single one of these ways. We personally have done so, and we as a nation have done so. We pray for your mercy. We ask that you would be kind and gentle to our nation, that you would bring us to repentance individually and corporately, that we would submit to you. Father, we have to leave this in your hands. We get to vote. We get to cast one vote. We leave this in your hands. We trust you and we do pray that you would work in those who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Our desire is to walk with you. Our desire is to know you and make you known. So we ask that you would be merciful to us as a nation to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There will be a family up here to pray with you in the front if you want to do that. Uh, Before we close, I want to uh, just remind us of these words of Paul from Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.